welcome to the weekly sermon podcast at the Cowboy Church of Ellis County. I've been talking about spiritual gifts for several weeks now, and if you were here with us last week, then you know that I ended my sermon with a monkey with a machine gun, a little clip. But you don't know how it ends. I thought you might want to see how the movie ends, and so I have it all for you this morning. If you'll go ahead and roll that clip, Jake. Isn't it amazing how, how so many things that seem like good ideas at the time just aren't? That's what happens when you give an ape a machine gun. I just don't believe God would do that. Do you? I really believe that God is smarter than these guys. I think that we serve a God that, that knows that spiritual warfare and spiritual things are serious. And that He's not going to lay these gifts, these spiritual gifts, on people that He knows will not use them responsibly. Or they're not prepared for them. Or maybe they're just not even intended for them. And so I don't believe that God's going to give a monkey a machine gun in the spiritual sense. But sometimes when we look around, it seems like that's exactly what has happened. I don't know if y'all get some of the religious television stations or not, but once in a while I like to flip through and just see what's going on. And one of the things that I have seen there was a gentleman, it's been some time back, but this gentleman looked very much like this video clip in a way because he, he was going around exactly like this, he was saying, fire, 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 fire. And every time he said fire, somebody dropped over. Just kind of like the video. And I'm sure that many of you have seen something like that. And the question that I want to talk about this morning is, what's going on with that? If God has the wisdom to give his spiritual gifts to those who are going to use them wisely to build up his church, to build up his kingdom, and to bring glory to him. How is it that so many times it begins to feel like a carnival or a sideshow? And what I said to you last week was that it's very possible that if it seems like in the spiritual sense that God has given a monkey a machine gun, that maybe what the monkey has isn't really a machine gun. Because God's not going to give us anything like that. So if they appear like they have a machine gun, maybe it's fake. Maybe it's not real. Maybe in the spiritual sense, it's what we would call a fake gift or a pseudo gift. It's not the real thing. But here's the problem with that. God doesn't give fake gifts. If God gives you something, it's going to be real. Listen, if God lays a Rolex on you, don't worry about taking it down to the store and having it authenticated. It's going to be the real article. If God gives you a spiritual gift, don't worry about it. It's going to be the genuine article. So he doesn't give anything away that is fake. And yet, so many times, it seems like we see that. So where are these gifts coming from if they're not coming from God? 
If it seems like a monkey has a machine gun, but we know the machine gun's not real, what, where, is it, where is it coming from? All right? Devil is one. There's only two possibilities. One is the devil from Satan, that Satan has laid on some, someone on something that is intended to trip up their spiritual life. Or the second thing that it could be is that the person's flesh, their own desires have, have conjured that thing up. And that's exactly what makes these red light gifts this morning so different. As you know, over the last several weeks, I have uh, uh, classified these gifts as green light, yellow light, and red light spiritual gifts. And the red light gifts are the most dangerous of the three because not only do they depend more on human intuition than the other gifts do, but they also can be easily faked or manipulated. And so... To help you understand why that's true this morning, I want to go through and I want to briefly discuss the red light gifts. We're not going to spend a lot of time on each one, but I want you to see what they are and how they can be imitated. I'm going to divide them into two groups, the red light gifts. The first group is called revelatory gifts, and the second group is called sign gifts. And revelatory gifts, I know that's a fancy word, but it simply means this. It, these are gifts that God uses to reveal something to people. That's why they're called revelatory. So, among the revelatory gifts that we're going to look at this morning are these. The word of knowledge, the word of wisdom, and there's a third one that we looked at last week, actually, which is called prophecy. I don't include prophecy in the red light gifts, by the way, because last week I told you that Prophecy, if it is properly exercised, is always tied back to the Word of God pretty directly. So when, when, when Jeremiah, back in the Old Testament, began to prophesy to people that the Babylonians were going to come and take them over, well, how did he do that? Jeremiah knew the Scripture. He knew what God had said to the people of Israel. That if they took up the idols, just like all the people around them, that ultimately God was going to come and, and take their nation away from them. And so, God, so Jeremiah knew what the Scripture said. He knew what the people were doing, that they were worshiping idols. And he, he understood when the Babylonian army began to come in that this was something that God was doing. And that's exactly what he prophesied. So prophecy, correctly understood, is always tied to Scripture. But the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom are not necessarily that way. For example, look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. This is prior to the giving of spiritual gifts, but nevertheless, it is a move of God's Spirit. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. This is when Jesus goes to his disciples and says, who do, you, who do you think that I am? Matthew chapter 16, beginning verse 13. It said, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn it from any human being. In other words, this was something that was just revealed to Peter. Jesus didn't tell him. 
He didn't necessarily get it from the Word of God. In fact, I don't believe he did. It is just something, according to Jesus, that God revealed to him. Let me give you another example. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. And here we're going to be looking at the ministry of Paul. Acts chapter 16, verse 6, still looking at the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom. It says that next, that Paul and Silas traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia, but again the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. Several times here it said that, that Paul, he's on a mission trip, he's preaching the gospel, he's going from place to place, and, and he wants to, it's on his heart to go to Mysia. It's on his heart to go to Bithynia. But as he begins to try to do it, what the Bible says is that the Holy Spirit prevented him from going there. My question is, how did the Holy Spirit prevent him from going there? Now, in one case, we know he had a vision. But in a couple of other cases, it's not clear to us how the Holy Spirit spoke to him. But we know somehow or another that God revealed to Paul he wasn't supposed to do that. And that's essentially what the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom are. It is God revealing stuff to us, revealing something to us that we would not know just from explicitly reading the Bible. And I know I've shared this story with you till you're tired of, of hearing it, but in a sense, that really is what happened to Donna and I when we came to Cowboy Church. Because right before coming, as I've told you, we were headed for another church. We'd already interviewed with them. They already said, hey, we want you, they'd already said, hey, we want you guys to come and, and be our pastor. And, and so we were going to do that. But as we drove out of town, about five or six miles out of town, I looked at my wife and I said, you know, I don't th think we're supposed to go there. And she said, you know what? I don't think we're supposed to either. And so we called them back and said that we wouldn't come. Well, what was that? It was somehow God revealing to us, to us His will in that situation. There wasn't a Bible verse I could go to that said, Brother Gary, thou shalt not go to this particular church or town. It wasn't there. Just as there wasn't a scripture that said to Paul, Paul, thou shalt not go to Asia. Some way God revealed that. And that is the word of wisdom or the word of knowledge. The only real difference in the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge is the word of knowledge is basic information about something. The word of wisdom is what you are to do with that information. In other words, it's how you apply that. So sometimes God is going to give us information, reveal things to us. Other times he's going to tell us what we need to do with some information that we may have. But that's word of wisdom, word of knowledge. So how can it be faked? Well, let's suppose I want a wife. And I'm looking around for a wife, and by golly, I finally find me one. I got me one. And, and I get married, and after we get together, after about a year, 
I realize that she doesn't really like anything that I like to do, and I don't like anything that she likes to do. As a matter of fact, all the things that she likes to do, I really can't stand doing. And the things that I like to do, she can't stand doing. And we don't share the same view in politics, and we don't share the same view about our faith. And as a matter of fact, mainly what we do is argue and fight all the time. We just don't get along at all. What was it Charlie Pride used to sing? It's better to fight the wind and rain than what I've been fighting at home. And so I come to that conclusion. I'm saying, man, this is really not a, a good deal. Me and this woman are not a good fit for one another. But guess what? By the grace of God, there is a woman at my work who is single, and she understands me. And I like her, and she likes me, and I like to do the things that she likes to do, and she likes to do the things that I like to do, and we do see eye to eye on politics, and we do see eye to eye on faith, and everything just seems like it's falling together just like it should. And I begin to seek God and pray about that, and God reveals to me that He has put this woman in my life so that at last I can find happiness in Him. I just feel it in my heart. Is that a true word of knowledge or a true word of wisdom? No. Well, where did it come from? Where did it come from? It came, it came from my own human desires to have something. I really want a good quality relationship with another person. This seems like that opportunity, and I want it so much until within myself I hear my inner voice saying, this is the one for you. Sometimes it's very, very difficult to know where our voice ends and God's voice begins. And that's what makes the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom a red light gift. There's a certain amount of danger there because it depends on human intuition. And human intuition can, in fact, mislead us sometimes. So now let's talk for a moment about the sign gifts. All right, We've just looked at the revelatory gifts. Let's look at the sign gifts. Uh, Sign gifts are typically understood as those gifts that were given to the apostles and, and other disciples from time to time to authenticate their ministry and their message. And an example of that is found in Matthew 10. We saw one last week in Mark. This week we'll look in Matthew. Matthew chapter 10. This is when Jesus appoints the apostles... Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Matthew chapter 10, beginning verse 1, it says, Jesus called his twelve disciples together and gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and heal every kind of disease and illness. And here are the names of the twelve apostles. We're not going to read those. Skip down to verse 5. Jesus sent out the twelve apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Give freely as you have received. This is Jesus calling his apostles to him. 
And we said last week that Jesus gave his apostles power and authority that not everybody had. He didn't give everybody the power to cast out demons. He didn't give all of his disciples the power to heal or raise the dead. It was to these 12 that he appointed. And, and he gave them this ability so that when, he carried, when they carried the message of Christ to an area, people could be confident that this was really coming from God because it was accompanied by miraculous power. Now this is confirmed uh, for us in a couple of places. First of all, let's look at John chapter 10 verse 34. John chapter 10 verse 34. Jesus replied, it is written in your own scriptures that God said to certain leaders of the people, I say you are gods. And you know that the scriptures cannot be altered. So if those people who received God's message were called gods, why do you call it blasphemy when I say I am the son of God? After all, the Father set me apart and sent me into the world. Don't believe me unless I carry out my Father's work. Notice verse 38. But if I do His work... Believe in the evidence of the miraculous works that I have done, even if you don't believe in me. Then you will know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Jesus was saying, listen, the, he was talking to some critics. There were some people that didn't believe in him. And Jesus said, listen, even if you don't believe in me, and even if my words don't ring true to you, at least look at the works that I'm doing. Look at the miracles that I'm doing. No one could do these things unless God had sent them. Jesus understood that the acts of healing and doing miracles was something that would, would authenticate him as coming from God. This is confirmed again in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Let's look at that one. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Here Peter is preaching that famous sermon that he preached on the day of Pentecost. And this is a part of his sermon, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He said, People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. Notice what it says. God endorsed Jesus by the miracles, wonders, and signs through him. That's why we call these things sign gifts. They, they are something that God gave to authenticate the ministry of people that are called by Him. Now, these sign gifts are typically understood to be healing, miracles, and tongues. Why would tongues be a sign gift? I mean, that's not necessarily a miraculous thing. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and I know we're looking at a lot of Scripture this morning. I would recommend you open your Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and just leave it open there because that's, we're going to look at several things in that chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 20. Why are tongues considered a sign gift? Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your understanding of these things. Be innocent as babies when it comes to evil, but be mature in understanding matters of this kind. It is written in the scriptures, I will speak to my own people through strange languages and through the lips of foreigners, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So you see, verse 22, that speaking in tongues is a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. 
Many, many times when you see the book, when you see tongues being exercised in the book of Acts, it is being exercised in the context of being a sign to people that God's Spirit has genuinely come. For example, whenever Peter went and preached the gospel to Cornelius, and we're not going to turn there this morning, but it's found in Acts chapter 10, if you want to note that down for your notes. God called Peter to go preach to a man named Cornelius and his family. Now, Cornelius was a Gentile. And Peter didn't really believe that that the gospel was intended for the Gentiles, but he went, and as Peter shared the gospel with Cornelius and his family, the Bible says all of a sudden they began to speak in other tongues. And that Peter and the disciples were amazed that God had given them the same gift when the Holy Spirit came that he had given the disciples in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And so we see how the, the, the gift of tongues was very often a sign gift. All right? Y'all with me on that? Now I want to take a little detour for a second. And I want to talk about tongues as it is commonly understood today. One of the things that you hear very often is that the gift of tongues is given as a prayer language. And I want you to understand that that is a fairly new idea in terms of Christian history. Throughout most of Christian history, the gift of tongues has always been understood to be people authentically speaking a language that they did not know themselves. For example, in Acts chapter 2, and we've looked at it several times over the week, so I'm not going to take you back to it. But in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost comes. And the Holy Spirit has not come, not yet. And the Holy Spirit begins to come. And, and what appears to be tongues of fire separate and appear over everyone that's gathered together there. And they begin to speak in other language. And the Bible says that there were people there from all different nations. And that the people from different areas, different regions, different nations heard the, uh, the disciples as they spoke in tongues. And each one heard them speaking in their own language. So it was a clearly defined, understood language. Even in Cornelius' case that I just told you about. When they began speaking in tongues, Peter said that he was amazed because the gift of tongues had come on them exactly the same way as they had come on the apostles in Acts chapter 2. And again, that was a spoken language, a recognized language like Chinese or German or, 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 or Japanese, any other kind of language such as that. In January 1st, of 1901, that understanding changed. There are certain things in church history that are not always clear to us. Church history goes back 2,000 years. But there are certain things in church history that we know exactly about. And one of them is the current tongue, tongues movement and where it originated and how it originated. It took place January 1st, again, 1901, at Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas. There were a group at this real small, real tiny little Bible college who had begun to believe that the church had lost its edge, that, that the Bible teaching was becoming dry, 
that God's Spirit wasn't moving as it did in the, in, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. And, and they began to wonder why that was so. so. So they set about to study their Bible and say, why is church different today than it was then? And one of the discoveries that they made in reading the book of Acts is that many times when the Holy Spirit came upon a people, it was accompanied by the speaking in tongues. And so they said, well, maybe that's what we're missing. And they committed together to pray that the gift of tongues would be reinstated or would come to the church again. And uh, on January 1st, 1901, one of the females that gathered there in that Bible college by the name of Agnes Osmond, she went and she began to pray uh, fervently that she might receive the gift of tongues. And she did. She began to speak in tongues. Shortly after she began speaking in tongues, there were another of other students that began to speak tongues there as well. Now here's the interesting thing that a lot of people don't know, but it's true and you can verify it. She believed, Agnes did, that she was speaking Chinese. Not only did she believe that she was speaking Chinese, she believed that she could write Chinese. In fact, history records that she did not say anything or write anything except in Chinese for three days after that experience happened. And so not only was she persuaded that she was speaking Chinese, all of the other students were as well. And as this began to, to spread and become known, there were several people that said, you know, this is a great thing that God is doing here. Because what God is doing is He is giving us a missionary gift. We're going to be able to go into countries like China and India and Indonesia, and we're going to be able to speak to them in their own language and write in their own language, and we don't have to go to language school. I mean, this is amazing. And several of them did just that. Some of them went to foreign countries expecting that what they were speaking would be understood and that what they were writing could be read. But whenever they got to those other countries, they were surprised to find that in fact no one could understand anything they said. And they came back very disheartened and very discouraged. Because in their view, they had experienced something that was genuine. They had never had anything that, that got hold of their heart in such a way as this had. And so they began to, to, to try to identify what had happened to them. And, and they concluded after some study that what had happened was that God had given them an angelic prayer language. A language in which they could commune with God in a deeper and more profound way than they had before. And that's where prayer language was birthed. They based it upon a couple of scriptures I want you to see. One is found in 1 Corinthians 14, 2. And let's look at that one because we're already there. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 2. This is one of the verses they based it upon. It says, For if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you will be talking only to God, since people won't be able to understand you. You will be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but it will all be mysterious. So they looked at that verse and they said, okay, this is what it is. God's given us the ability to talk only to Him, but other people will not be able to understand it. This is what's happening to us. And then they went to the book of Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians if you go with me. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 26, here's another key verse they use. These are not the only two, but these are the primary two. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, it says this. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. So they said that's what's happening also. Whenever we are speaking in tongues, God is enabling us to pray in groanings that no one can understand. Indeed, they can't even be spoken in human words. Now, I've got to tell you something, guys. In terms of the Bible, this is a plausible explanation. This is the kind of explanation that I would be looking for if someone was giving me a theological explanation of any concept in the Bible. So it is plausible. And I would also say to you that I know some very good Christians who love the Lord and serve the Lord and they have had this experience and their faith is genuine. They believe that it deepens their walk with God. I respect that. Having said that, however, guys, there is not one single clear example anywhere in the Scripture of the Bible teaching the use of tongues as a private prayer language. Not a single one. There is not a single example in the Scripture of anyone using tongues as a private prayer language. Not a clear one. The only real exception to that would be 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 28. And so if you held your place there, let's look at it together. I intended to get this up on the screen and I did not. But 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 28, in the NLT, says this. Paul is writing to people who have this tongues thing going on. He's trying to correct some things. But he said, if no one is present who can interpret your tongues, that is, then they must be silent in your church meeting and speak, to, speak in tongues to God privately. Guys, that is not a good translation. Speak in tongues to God privately. That's not what it says in the Greek. I think in the King James Version, it may say that they can speak in unknown tongues to God. I'm not for sure, but I do know what the Greek says. And what the Greek says is that if someone wants to speak in tongues, and there's no one there to interpret, then that person should be silent and just speak to themselves and God. Language, the word language, is nowhere to be found there. And so it is extrapolated from context. I'm saying, you, I'm saying that to you so that you'll notice some things. One of the things that Paul said, listen, if you're speaking in tongues and there's no one there to interpret, then you must be silent. Have any of you guys been to churches where there is a lot of, of tongue speaking going on and not any interpretation going on? Do you see people being silent? Absolutely not. And so this verse is most definitely not being used correctly uh, as, it, as it ought to be. I'm just saying this to you this morning. The practice of tongues that is, as it is used today, absolutely without, I, I'm just saying this without any reservation whatsoever. It has only been happening for the last 117 years. That is a fairly late innovation in terms of Christian history. And I think anything that is that new, we ought to, we ought to bear some um, care about using it. 
So having said that, let's talk a little bit about how these sign gifts might be imitated, falsified. With tongues, it's pretty obvious how tongues could be falsified, right? Any of you ever seen any little kids that want to imitate somebody? Maybe they want to imitate how grandpa walks, or they want to imitate how grandma talks, or one of their friends. You ever seen that? They can do an amazingly good job. They can imitate almost anything. And therein lies the problem with tongues, guys, because any human sound or behavior that one person can make, some other person can imitate that. They absolutely can. Any human behavior or sound can be imitated by another human being. And so that is the way it is with tongues. And that is the reason that some churches actually hold courses on how to talk in tongues. They'll prime your pump and kind of get you going on the syllables until you get the hang of it. And that's one of the things that makes it dangerous. Miracles and healings can also be faked. And if you don't believe that, I want you to watch this little brief video and then we'll talk about it for a second. The reason for choosing an ordinary person to be a faith healer is to show, as I believe, that the healing is not God's work. Anyone having been taught certain tricks and techniques can do it. As you know, pain is a very subjective thing, whether it's the adrenaline of a, of a big show or just somebody telling them with enough confidence that the pain is gone. There are many videos online of street faith healers supposedly curing the sick. So on a cold Dallas morning, I take our former scuba diver out to see if he can do the same. This will be more of a challenge than working with a receptive congregation, but I think Nathan's ready to do it. Any ailment, tell me about it right now. Pastor James, you got any pains? Have you got any pains? I have pain in my leg. I had surgery right here. They said it was in that pain. I had a ride put in. And always when it get cold, it's always... So you got a plate in there? You got a plate? Yes, sir, right here. The first person okay. we find is in persistent pain oh, from a metal plate in his leg. It hurts a lot, right? So when you get up, I bet when you get up from a, from a chair or from here, you got to push yourself up with your arms. Whereas when you were younger, you just, just sprung up, right? Yeah, right. I'm going to put my hands on your leg, okay? And I want you to think about the pain you're in right now, okay? And that's a 10, okay? Nathan knows the techniques. This is his moment of truth. Dear Lord, this man's plate in his leg is causing him so much pain. That plate's so cold. You're warming it up right now, Lord. You're warming it up right now. I can feel the man shaking in your power. I can feel the man shaking in your power, Lord. You get that pain right out. You get that cold right out. You get that. Can you feel that? Yes. Can you feel it? What's it like? What does it feel like? What can you feel? It's a tingling feeling in my leg, man. Stand right up. Stand right up. You don't have to push up. You don't see? You didn't have to push up this time, right? Remember we were talking about it? You had to push up? The man is very moved and staggered that his pain has gone. You told me that pain was a 10 before, right? Yes, sir. Okay, what's that pain in that left leg right now? You can reduce, hasn't it? That pain, zero. High five. Guys, this British TV crew went all over Dallas for a day with this scuba diver that had been trained by a magician to do healing. His success rate was 100%. And it wasn't just making a rod and a leg feel better. There were instances where he was able to open the eyes of the blind and improve sight and open the ears of the deaf. It was really quite remarkable. And yet 100% of it was fake. This man is not a believer. This man is not a Christian. This man does not have a spiritual gift. Well, how is it then that people like this young man, after they're prayed for, they, he said, what was your pain? Well, it's a 10. Well, what's your pain now? It's zero. How could that be? How could it be faked by the ones who are receiving it? And the answer to that is very much like my example that I gave to you a while ago about wanting a wife. If a person 
really is struggling with an issue in their life and they truly want God to intervene in it. And maybe they have been praying for it and someone comes along and says, I've got the power of healing. I'm going to pray for you and you're going to be all better. There are some powers of suggestion that can dull our pain. And we very well may respond to that in the moment, but 24 hours later, the healing is going to be absent. And that is exactly what took place here. But the interesting thing is, this all wound up with the church service. And this young man with a ponytail preached to a room full of people. And he did miracle after miracle in their presence. And every one of them thought that God was doing a work in their midst. And that's what makes these red light gifts red light gifts. Because not only do they depend upon our human intuition and response, but they can also be imitated, faked, and manipulated. And if you don't think people are being manipulated by people with pseudo gifts, I encourage you sometimes, well, I shouldn't say this. No, I'm not going to encourage you. But if you've ever heard the name of W.V. Grant in the Dallas area, this guy has been... He has been getting in people's pocketbooks for a long, long time with fake miracles. So it's not too hard to understand why there are people in in the Christian church who don't want anything to do with red light gifts. As a matter of fact, there are a good number of Bible teachers out there that I respect that don't even believe these gifts exist anymore. And, and, And basically... What they say is this. I'm not going to take you to the scripture. I'm just going to give you their argument. Here's their argument. They say, here's the deal. Sign gifts were given to authenticate the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the apostles. So Jesus and the apostles did miracles that authenticated their ministry. They were recognized by the church. The church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. It's done. Therefore, we don't need the sign gifts. They say the revelatory gifts were given so that people might hear from God and those messages might be recorded in Scripture. And now we have them recorded in Scripture. We have the Bible. So we don't need the revelatory gifts anymore. So those have ceased as well. It's a plausible argument from Scripture and it is a plausible argument from church history. But having said all of that, let me say this. I get real uncomfortable when people have to build a complicated argument to kind of talk themselves out of something that the Bible states very clearly. Let me show you what I'm talking about. If you're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I want you to look at verse 39. They can go through and weave together some scriptures that, that, that could indicate that some of these gifts might cease. But it is a complicated case that they make. But look at verse 39, what it says. So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is Paul talking about spiritual gifts. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and don't forbid speaking in tongues, but be sure that everything is done properly and in order. That is a good way to do it. Paul's policy was, we're going to allow the the spiritual gifts to be operating. But at the same time, we're going to hold people accountable for how they use them. And, And if you ever, I hope that you do, I hope in the process of us going through this study on spiritual gifts that you will at least go home sometime this week and read 1 Corinthians 12 through 
through 14. Because this is the longest Bible passage that we have on the topic of spiritual gifts. And if I could summarize 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 for you, here's what it says. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth about spiritual gifts, and he's saying, you're not doing it right. He said, there are a lot of things you're doing in in, in the terms of spiritual gifts that are not correct, and I am fixing to hold you accountable. Here's how you should exercise those spiritual gifts. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is all about. And, And frankly, Paul gets real hardcore on them at the end. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 14 verse 36. He gets real hardcore about how he corrects them. He says, do you think that God's word originated with you Corinthians? Are you the only ones to whom it was given? If you claim to be a prophet or think you're spiritual, you should recognize that what I'm saying is a command from the Lord himself. But if you do not recognize this, then you yourself will not be recognized. That's getting pretty plain. Paul said, listen, don't forbid the speaking in tongues and don't forbid prophecy or the exercise of spiritual gifts, but do hold people accountable for how they're being used. And very frankly, that's my approach. I don't want anybody to be afraid of spiritual gifts. That's one of the reasons we're doing this. Listen, God gives spiritual gifts. And He gives the spiritual gifts so that what you have might supplement what I have and what I have might supplement what you have. And all of us together are a fully functional body of Christ that glorify God, that accomplishes the Great Commission. We become a force together using spiritual gifts. I don't want you to be afraid of them. But I also don't want you running around like a monkey with a machine gun. I want the spiritual gifts to be used in a manner that brings glory to God and accomplishes the purposes that He has for them. And I think very honestly that if that same approach were taken by most of the Pentecostal charismatic churches out there today, about 90% of the chaos and the confusion that we see in God's church today, that it would absolutely go away. So don't be afraid of spiritual gifts. It is something that God gives, but use them wisely because if you don't, you can wind up doing more damage than good. I want to close with a couple of things that Paul says right here at the end of 1 Corinthians 14. Two things that Paul says. 1 Corinthians 14.32, he says this. He says, remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. The King James Version says, Remember that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. In other words, we have control of our spiritual gifts. Don't ever trust someone that just comes to you bubbling over with tongues or they come to you with some word and they say, man, I've got to get this out because God told me to get it out right now because Paul said, no, you you have self-control. And then he says at the end, there in in, in 39 through 40, just to be repetitive, he says, So my dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and don't forbid speaking in tongues, but be sure that everything is done properly and in order. Guys, that's what every Christian man and woman should want. We should want the spiritual gifts operating in our presence, but we should want them done properly in order. We want them to glorify God. We want them to strengthen the church. We want them to accomplish God's purpose in expanding the Great Commission, but we don't want them to make us look like a bunch of monkeys with machine guns because it's not a testimony. 
And it doesn't work in the world. And it doesn't accomplish the Great Commission. So may God give us His gifts. And may we use them in a manner that God intended them to be used. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning in Jesus' name. And we thank you for this moment of clarity. I pray, Father God, that I've taken this teaching and and made it uh, as clear as I humanly can. I pray, Father God, that perhaps you have inoculated us from some of the abuses that we might encounter in the world out there. But also pray that over these past few weeks that you have um, opened our hearts up a little bit. And opened our minds, Lord, that we might be open to receiving what you have for us. I pray, Father God, that we would um, very, very much be responsible. Um, Lord God, that our hearts would always center on glorifying you. And Lord God, that we would be led and empowered by you. Father, I pray for the church this morning that you would keep them far from error. I pray, Lord God, that you will give us the gifts that you desire us to have. I pray that we will find a place to use them. And that because of that, Father God, this church will be strengthened and built and your kingdom would grow. I lift it to you this morning in Jesus' name, for his sake only. Amen. For this sermon and many more, check out our website at www.cowboyfaith.org.